Welcome everyone to my regular podcast, Conversations on Spirituality in the Urban Yurt, where I invite guests into the yurt to have conversations on their sense of spirituality, how they define it, how they explore it, how they practice their spirituality in times when we're noticing people are maybe moving away from formal religion, institutional organisations, um, and yeah, maybe finding their own way of defining their spirituality. So today I have with me in the yurt, Jessie Brett, who I've known for a long time as a parent in Newham, meditator, Aussie, <laughs> and I'm just so delighted that you agreed to come to the yurt today and uh, have a conversation with us. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, it's yes. really good to see yeah. you here. So just maybe as a way of kind of hearing a little bit about who you are, and maybe just you'd like to introduce yourself, maybe tell us a little bit about your background, if, if you have any f- kind of faith background. Um, and, uh, yeah, knowing that you come from Australia, it'd be nice to hear a bit about whereabouts. All right. So, yeah, I come from Australia. Um, I was born in the desert, but I grew up um, on the east coast in Sydney, in a very wealthy part of um, Sydney, very white middle class wealthy. Um, yeah, and I'm uh, my um, I was brought up by my parents who were you know still together, and I would say uh, something that was kind of interesting with coming here today is that um, at the beginning of this year. I decided that it was going to be my year for saying yes to everything, no matter um, how I felt about it. So um, probably talking about spirituality is a little uncomfortable for me, um, and I think it's probably a lot to do with my upbringing. I think probably my mum might be surprised by that because she really tried hard for my brother and I to have... um, an interest and an introduction into religion, but uh, which she did, and she did that quite successfully. I think we we learnt a lot about all the different religions that there are, and um, and to talk about them, but to talk about them more in, I would say, in in less of a how how we felt about it in our hearts. Do you know what I mean? What what kind of our spiritual connections are. So my mum and dad were both brought up in very, very religious households um, and uh, they both left their religion um, because of their their negative experiences. So would that be Christian? I'm I'm making an assumption it would be a Christian religion. Yeah, very, very Christian, my grandparents. Um, In fact, my dad's mum um, was uh, ran a missionary home in Papua New Guinea, so my parents met in Papua New Guinea. Both their parents um, were over there working. Yeah, my grandma. They were both very involved, and my grandfather, my dad's father, you know, very involved in preaching and you know talking, quite a good talker. Um, and on my mum's side, like my papa, you know, he's always involved in the choir and things like that. He's a good singer. Um, you know, and it's a really big part of their life. And for them, for my grandparents, it was very disappointing for my parents to leave the religion. And, you know, it wasn't good for my parents, really. I think it was a very brave thing to do because I think it, um, 
you know, it was it was hard. I think it was really hard for them to do that because mm -hmm. it caused. I think it did cause issues with their relationships, but my and I feel like you know because of that, you know, my mom, she her parents didn't bring us up religious, but it was important for her to bring us up with a set, you know, with with morals and ethics that maybe come from Christianity, but are not. We're not Christians, you know. So we're not bound up with the, with the practice of Christianity, but the, the, the kind of the moral framework. Yeah, like just important. to be good people and mm. to be kind and compassionate and mm. aware of other mm. people and how they feel. Whereas my dad, I think, can be quite negative about um, institutionalised religion and, um, and at times can be quite difficult to have re talks about religion with, you know. Like when I... Um, after his mum died, I, uh, I bought him a book by a Buddhist, uh, Tibetan Buddhist monk, and he sort of, you know, he was all like, eh, about it, but he, um, he did read it, and I think afterwards he realised that actually, you know, it may have come from a religion, but it doesn't mean that it's a bad thing necessarily. Yeah, because later on, much later, like when I was an adult, they, they did try religion again, and joined a Quaker house in Sydney, and that went very badly as well. Um, so, you know, they've just had sort of like quite a chain of mm. poor experiences with institutionalised religion. So basically, I was raised an atheist, um, and I'm quite happy with that. I'm still an atheist. Um, so you, you said that they brought you up being aware of other faith paths. Yeah, so my mum particularly has a has a real interest in Judaism and she studied um uh you know studied a lot to do with World War 2 history when she went to university. She did her history degree. Um my godfather, he is um Jewish and so, you know, I've learned a lot about um, you know, Judaism. My my preschool was actually I went to a I went to a Orthodox Jewish preschool, so um, they, it's not like they weren't. Even though they, you know, didn't believe, I was still. They didn't put me off mm. religions or going to places. We would go a, to special events at the church, you know, like Christmas carols and things like that. Yeah. So we were, you know, taught about stuff, mm -hmm. but we certainly wouldn't sit around in the evening talking about. You so know. you were brought up as an atheist. I yeah. mean, there was the, the, the spiritual side, the God side, wasn't there for your family, but they were keen that you explored or were open to, to pe other people's traditions. Yeah, I think they thought we could make our own minds up later, you know. Um, yeah, so that's kind of been quite interesting for me, becoming a parent, about how I approach that type of thing with my children as well. So I think I do reflect on that quite a lot, you know. Mm. Um, yeah, so I, uh, I, I was sort of made aware of lots of things by my parents, but it wasn't really... Yeah, I didn't really... It was never really a big part of my life. All my friends were... are still atheists, pretty much. Um, I mean, I probably probably had a few religious friends growing up. We certainly never talked about it. None of us went to any kind of religious institution at all. You know, it just wasn't a big part of my life, really. Mm. Um, but, um, yeah, I would say when things did become important to me was when I was older. So when I was um, 
about 18. Um, it's kind of interesting because science brought me to spirituality, actually. Um, yeah, so when I was about 18, I had a, a very, very severe and debilitating um, depression. And like I'm, I still technically have it, but obviously under control. But back then it was very debilitating and severe. And I um, got a psychosis from it, depressive psychosis. Um, and yeah, had to take off time off life basically, couldn't work, couldn't go to university, all of that. Um, yeah, and I, my mum, you know, my dad had a pretty good job, so my mum was able to do some research into finding a psychiatrist that would, um, that I would be able to connect with, someone really good, someone not really run of the mill, and she found this woman called Wyman, um, who I think has just so deeply influenced my path in life in the way that not that she told me to do things but I think she saw things in me and um, I think we have quite similar beliefs and personality so she I started seeing her I saw her for many years like maybe 10 years or so um, before I left Australia and even actually after I left Australia I still was in contact with her and when I'd go back to Australia I'd see her so she um, she re introduced me to things that I would say are pretty much how I live my life now which is she um, introduced me into the philosophy of Taoism and um, and the philosophy of Buddhism not as a religion but as a a way to live life and she's the one that um, introduced me to uh, Chinese medicine, um, qigong, martial arts um, and most importantly meditation. Um, but back then I was still really struggling against I guess what Taoism teaches you which is you know you are who you are and, and you can struggle against that as much as you like but you're not going to get anywhere but I did did struggle against that for a, a good 10 years or so um you know I would try here and there sort of getting into these you know things but I feel like I feel like when my first when my grandfather my dad's father who was my first grandparent to die when he died that was a real turning point for me and that's when um and that's when I, I had sort of, I'd moved to China by then um, and I had sort of started meditating fairly seriously, but it was when he died, it was, a, it was very, it was really big. I actually, so I've had, also had OCD all my life, but I didn't actually really realise. I just thought that's how people basically lived. And because I've had it since I was a very small child, um, nobody really knew because I didn't show it and it's not not a lot of stuff to do with actions it's more internal but um, it became quite debilitating around that time because you know my brain just really freaked out about everything and um, and I realized that I just couldn't continue living my life the way I was living and I needed to I needed to sort of I really needed to address myself and go forward and be a functioning human being basically so I started uh, meditating on a daily basis then 
um, mostly, yeah, mostly mindfulness meditation, which of course comes from a Buddhist grounding. And, um, you know, and I started just looking after myself. And then through that, I discovered the, um, I guess, more kind of, they do use it in mindfulness in the secular meditation world, but it is a, it, it is one of the foundation meditations of Buddhism, the metta bhavana, so the loving kindness meditation. And I, I started meditating on that um, a lot, actually. Some weeks, maybe even every day, I would do metta bhavana. Um, and I feel like it's really, that really transformed my life, actually. Um, you know, and then, and then I had kids and... Can I yeah. can I just um, pause you for a for a second because you're in China at this at yeah. this stage yeah. when you start your granddad died and you um, you felt you needed something to to ground your life so you started this regular meditation. Yeah. Um, I'm interested to know whether you, this was you were on your own doing this. Did you join a community? No, on my own. To meditate with, so it was very much a, an individual inquiry, a, a personal yeah. practice. So where I was living for a lot of time in China, um, in Sichuan, Sichuan province, I was living in Chengdu, the capital there. So Sichuan is the birthplace of um, Taoism. So that was a pretty pretty All important to me actually mm. yeah one of my local temples that I used to go to a lot is a Taoist temple they're not as common as Buddhist temples um, but it's also um, there's it's also uh, Sichuan is actually on the Tibetan border so technically a lot of Sichuan land is Tibetan so of course Buddhism is huge there so we have a lot of Buddhist temples but um, so there was this kind of but I didn't really know anything about Buddhism then, and I certainly didn't know about Taoism as a religion. It is quite different, the religion to the philosophy. So, And also, so is um, Chinese Buddhism is quite different to the type of Buddhism that I'm interested in. So they do stuff where they go to a temple and they will pray for things, um, which is not really the Buddhism that I'm into. Mm. Um, the type of Buddhism that I'm in, into there's not really there's no one to pray to because Buddha was just a man mm. and he died so you can't really pray to anybody so I did used to go to these temples but it was not as part of a community <clears throat> just sort of I suppose my own thing so I started meditating just myself really and I did meet some friends over there who were also into meditation you know a lot of people are drawn to China for um studying Chinese medicine, you know, things like that. So that kind of thing, I did meet some people and we did try a little meditation group, didn't, didn't you know, go so far. I actually, I actually ended up probably my most spiritual experience over in China was when I became, I met some friends and made these friends and then Mike was saying to me later, he was saying, Oh, don't you realise they're Christians? I had no idea, but he used to be a Christian, so he'd really picked up on some things in, you know, conversation. And, and uh, yeah, one of the girls, Kara, became a very close friend of mine, and um, I learnt a lot about Christianity through them, and I learnt a lot about um, Jesus. 
and I became a tattooist and I started tattooing people. And, you know, the Christian community in China is very close-knit. Lots of young people go there and, um, and sort of word spread that I would do tattoos like, you know, Christian tattoos. <laughs> so a lot, actually a lot of my tattoos were Christian sort of um, words and pictures and things like that. And so I made a lot of Christian friends over there, um, which was quite interesting for me because I, uh, growing up, I didn't have a great view of the Christian church because of what the experiences my parents had had, you know, so it was kind of, it was a very different view of what um, religion and spirituality can be, mm. you know. But as for the meditation, really, I just did that. I did it myself, actually, mm. you know, and I just um, learned it all myself and just did a lot of research, read a lot of books, looked online and just began meditating every day. And just like people you know, who meditate will tell you, you start and it's very, it can be very difficult because you feel like you're not getting any kind of anything from it really. And then suddenly it clicks and it becomes this just incredible place of peace and um, almost addictive. You know, I would be meditating like up to two hours a day or maybe twice a day, you know, um, which is kind of interesting, I think, because you know maybe that doesn't maybe that doesn't look so great for some people, maybe you know, like maybe you're escaping the world, but for me, it was this I could really rely on this very safe place inside, I could always go there and shut everything else out, you know, and um, yeah, just be really safe. So can I can I push you a little bit more to talk about this sense of peace because it's it sounds amazing, um, and is this sense of peace how you would define spirituality? Is that is that is that the, is that the same thing? I'm, I'm interested to know. I'm hearing you say that you're an atheist, so there's no God. Um, so what is spirituality to you? What, what, what does that mean to you? So I'm not 100% sure yet. I think that I feel like probably everybody is searching for a, a holy grail of some sort. And I've thought a lot about um, what is that for me? Um, you know, and and it was actually, interestingly, it was, I think it was something that Sally said from BDCA and she one time she said something and she said something about peace and it just clicked in my mind and I thought, holy crap, that's what I've been looking for. I don't, I'm not going to find the truth. None of us are going to find the truth. And I think when someone like me who has OCD, you know, we're, we're control freaks basically. We're quite frightened by the fact that we don't have control over our lives and the lives of our loved ones and that's why we do these compulsions because we want to gain control we want safety we want our children to be safe we want to be safe ourselves for our children you know and I I think I will never have that like I'll never achieve that and I don't think any of us will because we're, we're life is a mystery and we'll never know where we're going and what life has in store for us um 
But I realized that's my holy grail is I want to be at peace with that. And I'm not there yet. I, I do use this um, yogic form of meditation a lot. I really love it. It's um, because it's yogic. It also sort of has a base in, in Buddhist philosophy in a way. Um, they have this thing called a San Kalpa where it's um, so it's not a resolution it's quite different from a resolution that you would make you know on New Year's Eve that that is that's a little bit harder because it, it that's kind of like this real you must do that you know I must quit smoking or I must lose 10 kilos and if you don't do it you can feel a bit bad at the end of that whereas a San Kalpa is it's this idea it's it's kind of translated as a heartfelt vow so it's a desire that you have and it's and it, you accept it as kind of a life progression and so it's it's this private kind of statement or mantra that you kind of that you design for yourself at this point in time and you use it as part of your meditation but you also use it just in everyday practice so it could be going to the shop could be uh, dealing with your children and you use it to, to make decisions as you go along in that moment. So, And it's a private thing. I don't mind sharing mine because there's something that progress and change. Like sometimes you'll have a Sankalpa and then you might realise actually I've achieved that, you know, and I can move on to a new one. So my one, I'm not sure I ever will achieve it, well, hopefully, but it's something that's been with me for many years, my Sankalpa, which is... And you normally say it in the present moment, so you sort of imagine it as already in being. And mine is that I, I'm, you know, I'm calm and I'm at peace, you know. So that's something that I want. And, and, and so it goes from basically from a spiritual perspective. That's a sort of an overriding idea that I want for my life. I would like to be calm and I would like to be at peace with things. I would like to be at peace with the uncertainty of life, the uncertainty of my future and the future of my children and you know that's that's kind of the bigger picture but also on an everyday basis you know if I if I'm getting annoyed at my child let's say I can reflect back on my Sankalpa and I can think well I've got a choice here I can choose to take the path, path of peace and calm or not you know so it's a little guiding guiding light I suppose mm. you know a sort of personal vow. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. Yeah, I, it's something quite important to me, actually. Mm. Yeah, I use it every day. Mm. Um, I'm interested to hear a little bit about your children. You've mentioned them a couple of times. I'm wondering, um, uh, they're still quite young, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm interested to know whether you meditate with them, how, 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 how thinking about your own upbringing, <clears throat> Um, whether you are more directive with them about spirituality or, or whether you're leaving them to make up their own mind and how, how... Yeah, I think it's a really, I mean, I think it's a really hard balance. I mean, you'd know yourself having children, like how much do we, how much do we tell them to believe in, how much do we leave to themselves? So I think in a way... I like my parents I I would pick and choose things that I think are just important to being a, a human and being a functioning human within society but also things that I think probably would have benefited me as a child 
growing up. So um, I was always very, very overwhelmed by my feelings. And, um, and that's one of the reasons meditation has been so brilliant for me because um, I'm still like that. I'm very hypersensitive. You know, uh, I get upset very easily, angry very easily. So meditation is like this very calming presence that, you know, I can take throughout my whole day. And my children, especially my older daughter, Flux, she's she's just really quite like me. She's quite overwhelmed by her feelings. So um, she... It's quite difficult for children to formally meditate. Um, and they can, her age, she can start slowly doing little bits here and there. But coming from me, she tends to not really listen to me very much. So I actually... I actually take both of my children to the Buddhist Centre in Bethnal Green. Again, this is one of the things I struggle with. If I take my children to a religious place, am I really, am I trying to manipulate them into believing in this religion? Um, probably. Um, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of benefits. And I do think the Sunday school they do there is not very preachy at all. They do... They do learn about the religion of Buddhism and they do learn about Buddha and what he said, but um, but I don't find it, it's too full on. Like I, They don't sort of give the kids any, well, if you don't believe in this, this is what's going to happen. You know, it's a bit more free-flowing. So in the, in the sessions they do, they'll pick, up, pick out some kind of aspect of Buddhism that is you know, important. So it might be what, you know, one month it might be compassion, one might, month it might be um, joy, or it might be stillness. And they do sort of things that they do it in a child, you know, focused way. So they will do meditation and they explain mindfulness and calming the mind and dealing with emotions and embracing all emotions for what they are. And that's the kind of thing I bring in. So my children don't really sit down and formally meditate, but they know that I do. And so I would say, I'm going to meditate now. And they know that they're not really to come in running screaming. Um, but also things like I really encourage them to feel their emotions and I encourage them to feel them in a, in a mindful way, which is not just thinking about what they're thinking, but looking at their feelings and how they're manifesting in, in, as physical sensations. So I think that's quite important. And to say that they're... So one time my daughter came home from school and she said at the at the assembly the teachers had been talking about this emotion of jealousy and how people should not feel jealous and I said well actually I don't agree with that I think it's very human to feel jealous but what you have to consider is that going to be useful to you or not and and that's your decision how much are you going to you know who knows maybe feeling jealous for 10 minutes is going to help you in some way I don't know that just don't discard it just don't say I shouldn't feel that way because then you're denying yourself your humanness, you know. Yeah. So. Um, so your daughter's at school. Yeah. In a in Newham, very multicultural, very diverse community. Yeah. And so she is in school with people of 
all the different world faith traditions. Is, is she aware of that? Does, is that yeah. something that she discusses and, yes. and yeah. asks questions about? Yeah, so last year, year one, they, they throughout the whole year, they heavily studied uh, religious education, was her, her favourite subject. Um, and she was in a in a very long um, school performance on Sikhism. Um, so she's she any time she sees anything to do with Sikhism, she's always pointing it out. Um, obviously, a lot of her classmates are Muslim, so that's something thing she's learnt a lot about. Well, actually, most of her teachers have been Muslim. Um, and she had a kind of interesting thing actually happen in reception, which was because you know how the kids have the day off for Eid. Um, she, oh, what was it? She came home and she was like, You haven't put the letter in yet, Mum, to have the day off. And I said, Oh, no, you don't have the day off because, um, you know, because you're not a Muslim. And she and she got really embarrassed, and she was like, and what she'd done is she told she had told her teacher that she was having the day off for Eid because she's Muslim, and I was like, oh, oh right, okay, um, why did you say that? And she said because we celebrate all religions, and I was like, oh right, okay, we better go and explain to the teacher that yeah, yeah. So she's quite aware of that, and we do, and we go to everything, you know the the things that they have in the garden, so Diwali, Eid, all of them, Christmas. Um, she was in the Christmas um, nativity at Bonnie Downs. She goes sometimes to the Christian Sunday school. So so that's how she sees herself, is, is a person who celebrates all religions. Yes, and even this morning, you know, the stuff that she remembers is quite amazing. Even just this morning. Oh, that's right. So I was talking to her this morning about coming to see you. And I said that you have this yurt for, you know, people to come and, and you know, think about their place in the world and everything and... You know, and then she started saying, oh, right, yeah, and she starts talking about all these things that I forget that she's learned. So she started saying, oh, right. So, you know, um, I said, you know, you could go to the yurt and you could you could pray or you could go to the yurt and you could do the call to Buddha. And she said, oh, yes, and, you know, talk about the five bowls of Buddhism. And I was like, what? And she, you know, she's remembered what all these mm. symbolisms are. But see, then I start worrying, oh, no, have I, have I pushed too much on to them? Like one time, you know, Jetta, she's, when she was two, actually, she's three now, but when she was two... She was going through this thing where we'd get home and she'd stand in front of the door and then she'd turn around and she'd start singing in Pali. You know, she'd be like, Namo Taza, you know, like that kind of thing. And I was like, oh, no, I brainwashed them into into Buddhism, which is not what I want to do. I just want them to... I think I think one of the things that... that um, so I don't think my parents brought me up incorrectly, but because I, I've had plenty of time to think about it. I'm almost 40. I've had plenty of time to think about it. And I don't think I will ever stop being an atheist. I th don't think it's my parents that are the problem. I think it's the society that's the problem. One of the things that is deeply missing from life if you don't have a, if you don't follow an institutionalized religion is that community. And, and for me, when I started finally started going to the Buddhist center in um, Bethnal Green, I felt very 
like my first visit, I felt very um, uncomfortable and worried that this would be a bad thing. And then I started going and I started chatting to people and I started learning about um, Buddhism and about the Dharma and what Buddha teaches like a lot more in depth than I've ever known and I and I I actually felt like I'd found my people you know and I think my parents are right I think that institutionalized religion has so many problems and it really does but but on one hand I feel like I you know that community is very important when you don't have it as an atheist in the same sense like you have friendship groups and other groups. You know, I used, I do a lot of things like playing group sports. I used to, you know, do a writing club. But this is this is a sort of deeper connection, isn't it? And that sort of, you know, where you can you can suddenly jump into a deeper conversation. Mm. Um, you know, and there is something about ritual and I ritual, think, which I never well. understood before, and I still feel quite uncomfortable about it, and I still feel like that has to be explained to me. You know, I was asking, you know, one of the women at the Buddhist Centre, well, what are you doing when you do the puja? I don't understand. There's nobody to pray to. And she said, well, no, you just... It's just this little moment of reflection, you know? And, and that kind of makes sense to me, actually, and I feel like maybe maybe my life has been lacking a little bit of ritual a little bit of you know and especially having OCD that kind of quite appeals to me you know and the symbolism of Buddhism really appeals to me a lot of people don't like it because it's very um, shiny and gaudy but I can understand where that's come from like this there there is the when I go into the shrine room you know and there's you know Buddha and he's glowing in his gold and he has that very kind expression and the beautiful big flowers and the incense is burning and, you know, it's it's moving and the flames are flickering. It's a very sensual experience. It's it? and, just and so I, beautiful. I, I wonder if that's one of the things about ritual, that it, um, it awakens all our senses. Yeah. Um, and in doing that, whether... We get in touch with something that's almost beyond us, yeah. something bigger than us. Yeah, and I think there's something practical in it. I think it would be very difficult to just go about your life worrying about things all the time or whatever. Like, I know at least with me and because of my mental health issues, I can't be like that all the time. But something that meditation um, and just learning to control my mind a little bit more is that it, it gives me. Uh, it gives me time and space to think about things that, and not let it overflow into the rest of my life. Because you know what it's like when you have anxiety. If it's just overflowing everywhere, not only impacts yourself, it impacts all of those around you. So it's quite important to sort of, um, you know, for some people, not everyone, but to keep, for me, to keep that kind of contained and I have my reflection time. And I feel like that's what you do when you meditate. It's just like um, it is a ritual, you know, and you and you have your little spot that you meditate and you settle yourself and you have that process, don't you, as you go into the meditation and as you come out of the meditation. Mm -hmm. And then you have that period post-meditation, don't you? where you're sort of, you know, coming back into the world. And that's that's kind of what all those 
religious rituals are, aren't they? They're giving us that time to go in and think about things that maybe we can't be thinking about all the time because we've got to work and we've got to look after children, you know, and we've got to keep going in our busy, busy world, which is huge. And that's one of the things that I had to change about my life was the enormousness of the world and that was the, that was the source of a lot of serious depression for me was that I could not control the sadness of the world. I couldn't stop, you know, children dying of starvation. I couldn't stop people getting bombed in their homes, you know. It was really, really overwhelming for me and that's what my psychiatrist taught me was that you can't and you have to bring it all down and you've got to make your world small. And that's what you can focus on and what you can control is your small world and your community directly around you and your family. And that's, you know... Beautiful. Yeah. Um, we're kind of coming towards the end of our conversation and uh, I usually ask the question at the end just as a sort of closing question and I think, I think you've actually just answered it for me but I'm going to ask it again anyway. Is just, um, yeah, in this mad, bad, chaotic world, what would your sense of hope be? Where does your, where does your hope lie? For myself? For yourself, yeah. That's a massive question. It is a massive question <laughs> to come in with at the end, but I, I feel like you've almost just answered it when you talk about, um, yeah, concentrating on what you can manage, the, the small part of the world that you can affect for yeah. yourself. Um, I, I think for me, my greatest source of hope is just that day-to-day -day compassion that we give people and I think you know a lot of people they don't um so for example that's why I was saying when I started going to the Buddhist center I felt like I found my people they don't think I'm weird that I do volunteer work like a lot of it just because I I just care about people's experiences do you know what I mean? Like that's why I go and help women with um, breastfeeding in the hospital. It's a it's this very simple little thing where you can just give someone a little bit of compassion, you know. And I think that's the the idea of the the metabhavana is that if we all just learnt to be more compassionate towards each other, um, and just did that on a day-to-day -day and understood those connections between us and understood that we're just inextricably linked, both past, present and into the future. And if we just bring that kindness and that love and that compassion to ourselves and to everyone around us, things things will fall into place and the world will be better. And that's what I think the problem is. We've lost a lot, you know, and. And just the importance, I actually, do you mind if I share something? No, please do. I brought this along because it was something I learnt about this year over summer in my, um, at, in the Wednesday classes I go to at the Buddhist Centre and it was, you know, sometimes words just really, suddenly they're just like, bing, mm. in your mind. And this was really important to me because it's, I think this is, just the, the foundation of everything for me. So it's called The Four Reminders and they're written differently. There's many different translations. They basically all have the same, you know, ideas. Um, and this is the one that the Buddhist centre I go to, um, you know, the Theravada Buddhism that's 
this is their translation that we've gone through. And what they what it is is it's um, this kind of founding idea in Buddhism. It's the very grounding of of everything that Buddhism is. Um, you know, and I know I sound like I'm a Buddhist. I'm, I don't know whether I am. I think some people would say I am, but you know, a lot. Of, I find a lot of meaning in it. So this is the four reminders. Life has inevitable difficulties. No one can control it all. The body is impermanent. Death is certain. The karma I create shapes the course of my life. This human birth is precious, an opportunity to awaken. These four reminders expose my preoccupations, things that at death will mean nothing to me. This life I must know as the tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. Therefore I recall my inspiration and aspiration and resolve to make use of every day and every night to realise it. Beautiful. What a lovely way to finish. I think that could be hope, just yeah. to resolve to make use of it every day. Yeah, yeah, gorgeous. Thank you so much, Jessie. Yeah, Thank you for having me so here. much for coming and sharing. <laughs> such gold for us um, to hear today thank you no problem <laughs> wow what a beautiful conversation with Jessie Brett thank you so much Jessie um, gosh yeah so much uh, so much inspiration in there and what a lovely way to finish with the uh, four reminders reminders of uh, things that might support us in our journey Jessie also mentioned during the conversation about her sankalpa, her commitment that she makes to supporting her highest truth. If you're interested in that, I have left a link to a website that describes a bit more about uh, the sankalpa. So uh, you can click on that and have a look if that's something that interests you. Also, just like to say that Jessie and I went out um, just last week to visit a red tent out in Rayleigh. Um, it was such a beautiful evening. A red tent is a space um, that women are invited into to share and celebrate all that it means to be a woman, offering each other confidential support. Um, few laughs um, we had a bit of yoga and a bit of uh, chanting it was a really beautiful evening but we were doing a bit of research really because we thought it would be a lovely idea to bring the red tent here to East London um, so watch this space we're hoping to start a red tent of our own here in East Ham in the urban yurt in the next month or so so I really look forward to that if you enjoyed the conversation today, which I'm sure you did, do please uh, subscribe to my podcast so that you can hear all the future conversations and you will get alerted to them as they're uploaded. Thanks for being with us today and uh, look forward to being with you soon. Bye.